Would you bow your, bow your, bow your heads with me and pray? Father, we believe uh, the song that we have just sung. We do believe that Jesus does care. That He uh, knows our sorrows. He knows all of our cares even before uh, we come and ask for help. And we are grateful for an opportunity to come as a con- congregation and lift up our requests before you and, uh, and to praise your name because of who you are. And Lord, we also are thankful for the opportunity to look into your word. Lord, we pray that you would do in us what no human can do, and that is to change our heart, reveal to us our sin, show us uh, the joy of serving you, help us to, to know you more fully, and may the knowledge of your glory spread in this place and throughout our area and through our missionaries around the world. We long for the day when the whole earth is full of your glory, from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same that the name of you will be praised. And uh, until that day, Lord, may we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul has been working through some issues in the church that are creating division and grieving the Holy Spirit. And he starts with the issue of divisiveness over teachers, which teacher is is preferred in chapters 1 through 4. Then in chapters 5 and 6, he brings up the issue of immorality. Chapter 7, he seems to start answering questions. Now concerning uh, this issue of um, marriage and singleness, he doesn't say it in those terms exactly, but he, he basically enters into a new conversation. Then he, in chapter 8, he moves on to talk about food sacrifice to idols. Now concerning food sacrifice to idols, and then he talks about Christian liberty and uh, headship and the Lord's Supper. In all of this, Paul is trying to get the Corinthians to see that they do have Christian freedom, but that they must not use it to serve their own lust. But rather, they must use their Christian freedom to serve the church. The church is a unified, spirit-created body of believers designed to glorify Christ. And so that means that each one of us, when we gather together, we must not do it in a way that draws attention or brings glory to ourselves. We must not do it in a way that divides our body. Instead, we must do we must meet together in a way that's in keeping with our purpose. And so here in chapter 12, Paul moves to a new conversation and uh, we'll see that when we get when we read these first couple words in verse 1. Let me draw your attention to your text here. We're going to read verses 1 through 13. This is the Word of God. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are a variety of ministries in the same Lord. There are a variety of effects, but the same God who works all things and all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, 
and to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as He wills. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. So in this text, we're going to see that the Spirit creates diversity in order to exalt Christ by edifying the church. The Spirit creates diversity under the context of unity, by the way, in order to exalt Christ by edifying the church. Now, there's a difference between diversity and division, and we'll get to that uh, in due time. But, but he creates this variety within the church with regard to um, ability uh, spiritual gifts. And so we need to recognize, first of all, that it comes from God. Our spiritual gifts come from God. And secondly, that they have a purpose. When we recognize those two things, we will work towards that same purpose and we will work to help maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, as Ephesians, uh, I think, chapter 4 says. So we need to work to do what the Spirit is already trying to do within us, we're complicit with the Spirit in that way. And so our, our goal, our, our, um, our goal in all this is to edify the church. We want to be in keeping with the Spirit's goal. So let's see this in verses 1 through 3. These first three verses seem kind of disconnected um, from the rest of the text because he goes into spiritual gifts and it sounds like he's not even talking about spiritual gifts in verses 1 through 3. But let me show you that he is actually using this as a foundational um, uh, conversation or, or um, uh, cornerstone, really, of the rest of what he's about to say. So notice the first couple of words, now concerning. He's starting a new topic like he did in chapter 7, verse 1, chapter 7, verse 25, chapter 8, verse 1, now concerning. And so it's, it's almost like he's got a list in front of him of all the questions that they asked him, and now he's getting to the next one. Not that these are all disconnected. These are all connected, and he seems to put them in a specific order, but, but he, he is moving on to a new topic. And um, so he's either responding to a specific question that they had with regard to spiritual gifts, or he's responding to a problem that, they, that he had heard about from Chloe's household, as we learned in chapter 1. second thing I want you to notice is to whom he is speaking. He says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren... So he's talking to Christians. And he shows his goal in the next line. He says, I do not want you to be unaware or ignorant. I don't want you to be unaware of what's going on. So he wants to inform them of something that they need to know in order to live properly within the context of the local church. So what is the content about which Paul doesn't want them to be unaware what is the content about which Paul wants them to be knowledgeable? And, and the content is spiritual gifts. He wants them to see the work of the Spirit in the church through these gifts. And specifically, he begins here in the first couple of verses to remind them of what the Spirit has done in salvation. So just try to picture what's going on here in Corinth. There's a great amount of confusion over... Um, what's true and what's false over what is of the Spirit and what's of a demon. 
So, so what, what is the work of the Holy Spirit? What is the, what is the work of a counterfeiter? Right? How can they know the difference? And so Paul helps to give the answer here in verses 2 and 3. He says, You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So the only way that a person... So he's, he's talking about them, believers. Remember, we're talking to believers. You formerly were following after mute idols. And now you're following after God. And you're not saying Jesus is accursed, you're saying Jesus is Lord. So, just take your situation right now. How could you get from there, mute idols, to be able to say Jesus is Lord with all your heart? And what does the text say in verse 3? How can a person get from one place to the other? How can a person get from mute idols to a place where they they affirm that Jesus is Lord? How is it? By the Holy Spirit. No one who has the Holy Spirit will say Jesus is accursed. No one who says Jesus is Lord is without the Spirit. No one can say Jesus is Lord is without the Spirit. Now, he's not saying you know a robot can't say Jesus is Lord and therefore he is indwelled by the Holy Spirit or a toddler, an unbeliever. They could actually mouth the words, right? I think he means more than that, obviously. I think his point is, is that no one can say those words with their fullest meaning, with confident trust in Jesus apart from the work of the Spirit. That's the point. No one can do that on their own strength. No one comes to Christ apart from the Holy Spirit. What does Jesus say to Nicodemus? Unless you are born of the water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. The water and the Spirit I take as uh, just appositional. That is referring to the same idea, the Holy Spirit. No one can enter the kingdom of God without the Holy Spirit. No one can be saved apart from regeneration. That happens through the work of the Holy Spirit. So how can we know what the work of the Spirit is? Well, if someone's saying Jesus is Lord and they're saying it in its fullest meaning, then that is of the Holy Spirit. If someone is saying Jesus is accursed, that is not through the Spirit. So we can tell if the Holy Spirit is behind the actions of a particular person first if Jesus is magnified. Because that's what the Holy Spirit is working to do in our church and in every church in which He dwells. He's seeking to see Jesus magnified. So how does this relate to the problem at Corinth? Because it doesn't sound like it has anything to do with spiritual gifts. Apparently, some were claiming superiority because of the gifts that they had. And we'll get to this more next week. But but. Um, it seems to me that from the reading of the rest of the chapter that some people were exalting their ability to speak in tongues over all the other gifts. We'll touch on a little bit more when we look at the first list in verses 8-10. through 10. And he lists speaking in tongues and, and um, interpreting tongues as the last one. But um, it seems that they were exalting their big, flashy, showy gifts that, that impressed people and Paul saying, listen, I don't care uh, how gifted you are. If your gift is not being used to exalt the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus, it's not of the Spirit. 
But if, if Christ is being exalted in the use of your gift, whatever it is, from teaching to giving to administering to serving to, there's in that time, healing and miracles we'll talk about and, and um, tongues, whatever it is. If you're doing it in order to exalt Christ and Christ is actually being exalted, the Jesus is Lord idea there, then it is of the Spirit. So how does a person exalt Christ with their gifts? I mean, that's the next question we need to consider. How does a person exalt Christ with his gifts? If, if that's one of the tests of whether it's of the Spirit or not, then how do we do that? And that's what verses 4 through 11 help us to answer. We, we exalt Christ with our spiritual gifts when we use our spiritual gifts for the edification of the church. So number two... Spirit works in believers in order to exalt Christ. And then second, the Spirit creates diversity within the church in order to exalt Christ by edifying the church. So He does it for a purpose. So it, 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 it has this purpose of exalting Christ, but how do we exalt Christ? Well, we exalt Christ by edifying the church. Okay, so, you know, sometimes we get into this really cliche-ish type language where we say... I just want to glorify God with everything I do. So my music, it's all about glorifying God. And my dress, it's all about glorifying God. What does that mean? Okay, I want to magnify Jesus with how I use my spirit. Well, what does that mean? And so here's a tangible way that you can exalt Jesus with your spiritual gifts. Use, it, use your spiritual gifts in a way that edify the church. Alright, so we'll get to that when we get to verse 7. But first, let's see. In verses 4 through 6, that diversity has diversity in the church is good because it has its source in God Himself. Diversity in the church is good because it has its source in God Himself. And Paul uh, is not trying to be brief here in verses four through six. He's not trying to just get one point across and move on. He he is repeating the same idea but using a different person of the Trinity to do it. So notice how he repeats himself here in verse four. A variety of gifts. There are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. So there's the third person of the Trinity. And then notice verse 5, a similar idea. There are a variety of ministries and the same Lord. So he's using a synonym for gifts, ministries. But then he's using the the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 6, there are a variety of effects, another synonym for gifts, but the same God who works all things and all persons. And then skip down to verse 11. And he does the same thing. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. So diversity in the church with regard to gifts is good because it has its source in the triune God. And in verses 4 through 6, he essentially just says the same thing. There are a variety of gifts, a variety of ministries, a variety of effects. They all have the same source, the Holy Spirit, the Lord, God. The Corinthians were exalting some of their spiritual gifts over others and consequently de- despising certain gifts that should not have been despised. Right? Because all the gifts, if all the gifts are from, the, from God, we'll see this next week, right? How can one part of the body say they're of no value? You know, because I'm not the hand, I guess I have no value. No. Every part of the body has value. He's going to reinforce that idea. But, but the fact is, is that some of these people who are 
kind of superior in the church. We're looking down on other people and probably even teaching this kind of thing that, that your gift is unimportant. Only the gifts that we have, probably the gift of tongues, um, was the one that was highlighted. But you see, these teachers who were Christians, by the way, saw adversity as a, or diversity, I should say, diversity as a bad thing. So your lesser gift, you know, it's not that good. You should aspire to get a greater gift like I have. But Paul wants the proud and the despised both to know that no matter what gift of service you have, it is from the Lord. So can I say that to you tonight by extension? Whatever gift that the Spirit has given to you is of the Lord. It is not to be despised. It is not to be uh, embarrassed. Something to, embarrass, to be embarrassed about. It is from the Lord. Diversity in the church is good because it has a source in God Himself. And then verse 7, diversity in the church is good because it has a godly purpose. Diversity in the church... Okay, we're talking about spiritual gifts. It's good because it has a godly purpose. Do you see where I get that from? Notice this purpose here in verse 7. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit. So we could say the individual manifestation that you have, or there's probably um, multiple people have multiple gifts. Okay, It seems to be that some people have more than one gift. That's okay. But whatever the case, whatever manifestation of the Spirit you have, use it for the common good. So it has a godly purpose. Diversity is designed for the common good, for the spiritual well-being of the church. So here's how we can know what is it that exalts Christ in the way that I use my gift. Well, it needs to be for the common good. That's what verse 7 says. Then skip down to verse 24, and we'll see this idea again stated in a different way. But the same idea. The, The second part of verse 24 says, But God has so composed the body... So again, notice... It's God who put it together. It's not just kind of randomly coming together. It's not coming together by some kind of um, ecclesial evolution or something like that. God has composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacks. So we'll talk about that next week. Verse 25, though. So that there will be no division in the body. Okay, so so there's a purpose. It's for the common good and it's to, to avoid division. That's not what the Spirit's about. And then notice the last part of the verse, verse 25. But that the members may have the same care for one another. Do you see how that works to help the common good that God is working towards? God is working to use your spiritual gift for the common good so that it will help to care for the needs of other believers. Spiritual, and I would say even physical, which in some sense is tied to our spiritual um, that is, you know, a person can be depressed, right? When they're financially burdened. When they're, they're weighted down by their health problems. They can be spiritually distressed. And so what can you do physically to help them that will actually contribute to them spiritually as well, right? Can we not give money to those who are poor to help them so that they depend on God and actually exalt God for His goodness and giving uh, and providing for their needs, right? So that's why that's what I mean by physical is in some sense connected to our spiritual. So let's talk about this idea, these two ideas of diversity and division, okay? Because I've been kind of using both of those words already, but I don't want us to confuse them, okay? 
Diversity and division are not the same thing. Think about it. Is a divided church united? No, it's an oxymoron, right? They're the opposite. A divided church is divided. A united church is not divided, right? But can a diversely gifted church be united? Yes. See, there's diversity there. We can think about this with regard to race too, but but specifically... Um, we're, we're talking about spiritual gifts. So if there's diversity in spiritual gifts, we can be united and we ought to be. So I would say it this way. Division is not of the Spirit and it's incompatible with unity. So you can either have one or the other. You can either have division or you can have unity. It's like oil and water. right? They're, they're not going to mix. But diversity is of the Spirit and is compatible with unity. So that's why diversity is a good thing. It's, it's sourced in God and it has a, a godly purpose, a God-centered purpose to actually provide for the common good of the church. So diversity is not a bad thing. And we know that because diversity in the church is sourced in God, verses 4 to 6, and it has a good purpose. Does that make sense? All right. Verses 8 to 10 um, is diversity illustrated. So here we have a list of some of the spiritual gifts. I saw a helpful um, uh, um, discussion in one of the the theology books that I have, Wayne Grudem. And he he takes all of the lists of the spiritual gifts and he he marks out the ones that are different. So he, he, he counts about 20, 22 different spiritual gifts. So what we have here is not an exhaustive list. Okay, when I say exhausted, I, I don't mean this is every single possible gift that you could have. So when we come to a text like this, we tend to have this fascination with spiritual gifts as if we've got to discover what our spiritual gift is. Okay, and and we need to we need to know what the exact definitions of all these things are and how uh, we can discover what my spiritual gift or gifts are. And that's not what Paul's doing. In fact, Paul never does that. He never says, search out your spiritual gift. Okay? He just simply just gives the list. And so I would say that this is a representative list. Okay? He's not trying to be exhaustive. Remember, he's dealing with a problem, isn't he? He's responding to a problem that they have. They are exalting one of their spiritual gifts over all the others and saying the rest are unnecessary. They're useless. And so... When he's given a list, he's not trying to teach us. Here is the exhaustive list of all of the spiritual gifts. Figure out which one is yours. It's not what he's trying to do. So that's why when we come to a text like this, we need to recognize the purpose of his writing. Okay? We need to think about it in terms of its context because otherwise that's when we can get lost. I don't know if you've ever um, uh, gone through some of these questionnaires to help you try to find your spiritual gift. Right? But... But I don't think the Scriptures ask... We'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more. Because um, I, I don't want us to think, well, then I guess they're not important. We shouldn't even think about them at all. We'll just kind of live life. Uh, I, I don't think we should do that either. But um, but I think we, we are forcing what we want out of the text onto it. And I think that's not helpful. So the other lists of spiritual gifts, by the way, are... One is found in verse 28 and following verses 28 through 30, so we're going to get there next week. Then Romans 12, 6 through 8, 
and then Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. And again, each time Paul is writing and each time he's not trying to give a theology of spiritual gifts. He's simply trying to, when I say a theology, I mean he's not trying to, to itemize each one of them out and define them. Instead, he's just trying to make a point with regard to what we should look like. In some sense, we should be, we should be using our spiritual gifts for the, the sake of the church. Um, Leon Morris, in his commentary, uh, says the only spiritual gift that makes all four lists, by the way, is prophecy. So whatever that's worth, there you go. In the list that we have here, I would suggest that there's a lot of overlap. We have some overlap between you know, wisdom and knowledge in verse 8. We have some overlap between healings and miracles. So what, what exactly are these? It's hard to, to tell exactly what Paul had in mind. But let's just go through these. I'll give you um, kind of a um, scholarly definition of what each of these are. And what I'm drawing from are the commentaries that I'm reading, um, Gordon Fee primarily, and then some of the theologies. Dr. McCune was helpful in some of these as well. So I don't have all the uh, resources for you exactly, but I'll, I'll try to try to at least tell you what, what I've learned from them. Uh, verse 8. The first one is the gift of what? It's called a word. For To one is given the word of wisdom. So this word of wisdom was a gift connected with special revelation probably where a person would receive truth from God and be able to present it to others. And then the second one, this word of knowledge, we call it the gift of knowledge. It's the ability to receive and communicate divine revelation. The third one, verse 9, is the gift of what I would call extreme faith. Notice. And to another faith by the same Spirit. So somehow the Spirit is giving someone faith, but it's not talking about saving faith, right? How, how can it be? Remember verse 1, to whom he's speaking? He's speaking to believers. He's not saying, to some of you I give faith. The saving faith. That, that can't be. You all have faith. He's saying, to some of you, I give probably some extreme form of faith um, that has the ability to, uh, just has this unusual ability to trust God beyond what is, is normal for a Christian. Let's just leave it there. All right, gifts of healing. Uh, next, in verse 9, probably multiple types of healing. Uh, notice that both words are plural, gifts of healing. So maybe there's different kinds of healing, different kinds of sickness. You know, one person had a gift if cancer were an issue back then, you know, the gift of healing cancer. The other person, gift of healing lameness or something, um, which might help for those of you who are terrible at jokes. Um, apparently it would help for me. Verse 10, the gift of miracles, pretty self-explanatory that, that at that time miracles were still um, going on. And then uh, the gift of prophecy there in the middle of verse 10 the gift of prophecy. Some, the Spirit gives prophecy. Now, this could be just speaking about, uh, there's some debate over this. This could just be speaking about anybody who speaks the truth of God's Word. But most often in the Scriptures, if not always, and I didn't do a full research on this idea of prophecy, but I, 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 I would think that 95% or more, if not 100%, of all the mentions of prophecy have to do with actual uh, special revelation. That is, it's not just taking special revelation here and reciting it back to somebody, but it's actually receiving special revelation. That's prophecy. And so in this sense, this is still going on with 
the church. So I would agree with Leon Morris who calls this inspired speech. Right? We talk about this being the inspired writing. Well, prophecy is like an inspired speech. The Holy Spirit is actually speaking through them. They're actually giving them divine revelation. Now, the difficulty in their church would come because there were counterfeits. And so, how would an average believer know which person is actually speaking on behalf of God and which person's a counterfeit? How do they know? Well, that's what this next gift is for. Notice in the middle, middle of verse 10, the gift of discerning the spirits, distinguishing the spirits. So which person is actually speaking on behalf of the Holy Spirit and which person is speaking on behalf of a demonic spirit? They're, apparently someone had a gift to be able to tell which one was speaking on behalf of God and then they helped everybody else know. And then these last two, he lists here the gift of tongues and the gift of interpretation of tongues. The gift of tongues was a special form of speaking in an unintelligible language. And, and keep this in mind that often the speaker wouldn't even understand what he was saying. So the only way that he could understand what he was saying is if he had the next gift at the end of verse 10, which is what? The interpretation. So he actually had to have, in order for him to understand what he was saying in tongues, he'd have to have the gift of tongues and the gift of interpretation of tongues. You see? Without this gift, the speaking of tongues was essentially useless. I mean, there's some use to it, right? Because if the person spoke in tongues, apparently God could understand what was being said, but no one else could if the interpretation of tongues is not there. And based on my understanding, and some of you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, this gift is largely absent today in churches that have tongue speaking, the gift of interpretation of tongues. That is, that, that the person there, there are lots of people who speak in tongues. But the hearers are left ignorant about what is being said. said. I mean, can anyone verify that? As someone that has experience in Pentecostal or charismatic churches that have seen this happen? Do other people get up and, and interpret what's going on? Okay, occasionally. In English? In tongues? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, so my understanding is largely absent. This, this thing here, which I'll. I'll touch on that here in a second. Bill. Uh, not necessarily. In X, in X, it was three. Yeah, they're they're actually speaking in other people's languages. That you know, these people are like, how do they know my language? I'm from far away, and um, so in that case, those were intelligible languages. But um, it doesn't always have to be, and it seems that the speaking of in tongues was not known to the speaker or the hearers unless you had an interpreter. Here.
the interpretation part. Hmm. That's interesting. That's how you start. I, I did hear something about that. Were you the one telling me that? That they have some kind of words that help prime their pump, so to speak. So they ha they just recite these words over and over again, and then eventually you can start. Sandra? You gave them different languages, but this is, yeah, that would be different, I think, than what's going on here. Um, this started at a Pentecost with the, when the Holy Spirit came on them with great power. And part of it was, think about what the purpose of it was at that time. It was to help to attest to the Jews, particularly, that this actually is the true gospel. Remember, they're rejecting that Jesus is the Messiah. And um, so I'll, I'll say more on that in a second. Bill. Jared. Yeah. Yeah. So we're not denying that tongues is not a real thing. Um, I'm denying that it's a real thing today, but um, that's a different argument. Jonathan. Yeah. And did they have any interpretation? Okay. So, if there's no interpretation of tongues, the person effectively speaking to God but not understanding what they're even saying. And that's a silly that's a silly to me as each of us coming to church with our headphones and during the singing time, we each play our own songs of worship to God. This is our own little individual session of worship when it has no value for the rest of the church. I think that speaks to the main point that's going on here. See, tongue speaking in and of itself is useless if it doesn't have interpretation. So let me show you this in chapter 14. Uh, we need to wrap it up here, and I've got a lot more to say. Um, and then I need to apply. But um, chapter 14, verse 5. Notice what Paul says here. Now I wish that all of you spoke in tongues, but even more than that, that you would prophesy. And greater is the one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets. And then notice this next phrase, so that the church may receive edifying. So do you see Paul's desire again? He wants to see edification happen. So your gift is no good unless it actually works for the common good, for the building up of Christ's saints. Look down to verse 9, chapter 14. So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. And then verse 12. So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Therefore let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. Then verse 17. For you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. I thank God I speak in tongues more than all of you. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. Yeah. So,
so he's saying, listen, I can speak in tongues better than all of you who are boasting about this great gift. But you know what I'd rather do? I'd rather just say five words that are intelligible to the people who are there. Because that is of more value than 10,000 words in a tongue that nobody understands. So that's the point. You might be having your little personal worship session when you come to church, but what benefit is it to the body if no one can understand it? And there's lots of implications that we can draw from that, certainly for preaching, for singing, for just playing the piano, right? I'd rather play five notes that people actually understood what the words were that were attached to it rather than 10,000 that no one even knows what it's about. So, um, all right, let's uh, keep moving because we have some more to, to look at here. Verse 11 in chapter, First uh, Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11. Next week. Next week we have this. It's almost completely about that next week. So, diversity is good um, because it's sourced in God. Diversity is good because it has a godly purpose. Then we saw diversity illustrated in verses 8 through 10. And then finally, diversity is good because every gift is distributed by the Spirit. I apologize for the cut off there. Every gift is distributed by the Spirit. This is really just a, a restatement of what he's already said. He goes back to his point that he's been explaining. The diversity is beneficial for the church because it comes from the Spirit and each gift is distributed by the Spirit. So it's good that, that not everybody speaks in tongues. I mean, it would be as silly as a whole person being an I, like he's going to say next week, right? I mean, what a monster. Paul's turning a corner here in verses 12 to 31. Is that... I'm terrible. Um, Paul is turning a corner here in verses 12 to 31. We've seen the source and the purpose and the distribution of the diverse gifts, but how does this contribute to unity? I mean, what makes a diversely gifted church a unified church? I mean, unity is not automatic. We don't just kind of show up and, hey, we're unified. There are lots of diversely gifted churches that are divided. And so we actually need to work toward the unity that the Spirit has created and toward which the Spirit is working to build in us. And the first step in that process is verses 12 and 13. We need to recognize that we all have unity through our common conversion. So verses 12 and 13, the Spirit creates unity through conversion of individuals, through the conversion of individuals. Spirit creates unity through the conversion of individuals. Paul employs an analogy or an illustration to show how this diversity and unity works. Because I said that they are compatible. So how does that work? How could diversity and unity be compatible? Well, he uses the analogy that he's going to carry on through verse 26, and it's the analogy of the human body. And Paul is going to apply it in verses 27 to 31. So we'll pick that up uh, in verse 14 next week. But... Let's just talk about these two verses briefly and then think about some principles and applications. Our fundamental unity in the body comes from our common conversion in Christ. Our fundamental unity in the body comes from our common conversion in Christ. Let me show you why I'm saying that this is a common conversion, why I say conversion. And the reason that I'm saying that is because Paul is talking about, in these two verses, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. 
So let me read the text and then I'll explain. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body. So there's the diversity and unity. So also is Christ. Or so also is likely Christ's body is the idea there. First uh, Corinthians 12.12. 12. And then verse 13. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we're all made to drink of one Spirit. So here's why I'm saying conversion, and that's because we're talking about baptism of the Spirit. Now, there are um, godly people who think that this is talking about water baptism in this context, but uh, like the landmark Baptists do. But the reason I know that this is not talking about water baptism, but rather Spirit baptism, is because we can simply see it in the text. Who is performing the baptism in water baptism? Who physically performs the baptism in water baptism? A human, pastor, right? Some leader in the church usually. Who's performing this baptism in verse 13? How do we know that? What does the text say? There you go. For by one Spirit we were all baptized. And so that's what theologians call spirit baptism. Very simply, comes right from the text. And what is the Spirit baptizing us all into? What's the next line tell us? Into one body. And what is this body? The body of Christ. Right? So in other words, each of us is a diversely gifted believer in this local church and, by extension, the universal church. And we all came through the same front door. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. So none of us were converted apart from the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, spirit baptism was not exclusive to the Corinthian church members. You might think, well, maybe this is just something for them. You know, maybe they're all baptized in the Spirit, but not us. But notice what the text says, verse 13. For by one Spirit we were all. And we can say, well, that's Paul and the Corinthians. But now turn back to chapter 1, verse 2, because I want to show you that Paul's talking to more than just the Corinthians. He says, To the church of God, 1 Corinthians 1-2, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. So there he is talking about Corinth and only those Christians. But then notice this next line. With all who in every place call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. So Paul knows by inspiration that he's talking to more than just the Corinthian church. And so I would suggest to you that this spirit baptism is applied to more than just the Corinthian church. It's applied to every church, every believer. So what is this baptism of the Holy Spirit? Well, do you remember from the teaching of John the Baptist and Jesus that the the spirit baptism was connected to the church in some way? What what did John the Baptist preach in Matthew 3.11? I baptize you with water, but what? Coming one after me He's not going to baptize you with water, but He's going to baptize you with fire and the Holy Spirit. I think those are another uh, uh, appositional ideas there, just, that we're going to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so, and then Jesus, remember in Acts 1.5, He essentially says something very similar. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Listen to this last phrase. Not many days from now. Jesus is about to ascend up into heaven. Pentecost is coming. 
you're going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. What happens on the day of Pentecost? They're baptized in the Holy Spirit and they're able to speak in tongues. So listen to Dr. McCune on what spirit baptism is. He says, spirit baptism is a judicial, non-experiential placing of a true believer into the church, the body of Christ. Talking universal. Okay. So every one of us, when we come to saving faith, we have this non-experiential, we don't feel it, non-experiential judicial placing of each one of us into the larger body of Christ. Every single one of us. It's kind of like uh, a person who becomes a U.S. US citizen. There's no specific feeling that's necessarily attached to becoming a U.S. citizen. It's a judicial placing of you into the citizenship excuse me, of our country, right? There's no subjective experience or feeling that's necessary for a person to have this kind of status change. Same thing is true with the baptism of the Spirit. So you didn't feel yourself become baptized with the Spirit. It just happened when you were saved. Now, the outward expression of our spirit baptism ought to be what? The inward, the inward reality is that we are baptized into the universal body of Christ. What's the outward expression of spirit baptism? Water baptism, right? And when we are baptized in the spirit, we're placed into the universal body of Christ. What's the, what's the outward expression of that inward reality? Join a local church, right? Okay, so these two things connect. That, that it's not something that we just kind of do and, oh, you know, I'm going to just ride my way on through life apart from any church or any accountability. No, we, we, we are water baptized to give a public profession of our faith and then we join an actual local church that will help us keep accountable and help um, we help them do the same thing. All right? So, uh, he goes on to say at the end of verse 13 that spirit baptism is indiscriminate with regard to race and social status. So it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Greek. No matter what race you are, it doesn't matter your social status, labor-free, rich or poor, anyone can receive the baptism of the Spirit if they trust in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. Two principles in the application. Number one. First principle. A spirit-filled Christian is identified by his confession that Jesus is Lord. One of the ways that we can identify a spirit-filled Christian is whether or not he agrees with the statement that Jesus is Lord. Not, there's no evaluation of a person's spirit-filledness, spirit-filling, without making up a word, is spirit-filling based on the gift that he has. Well, you know, you don't have the gift of tongues, so, you know, I'm really sorry. You don't have the gift of teaching, too bad for you. Spirit-filled Christian is identified in one way by his confession that Jesus is Lord. I get that from verses 2 and 3. Secondly, a spirit-filled Christian is identified by the use of his gift for the spiritual well-being of the church. A spirit-filled Christian is identified by the use of his gift for the spiritual well-being of the church. So in other words, he is working in line with what God is working to do, with what the Spirit is working to do, right? The Spirit's working to exalt Jesus by edifying the believers, doing what is necessary for the common good. So that's how we can tell. These are two ways that we can tell what a Spirit-filled Christian looks like. So if your so-called spiritual gift does not do what God intended, it's not from God. If your so-called spiritual gift 
divides the church and opposes the Lord, it's not for God or it's being misused properly. Because I think that some of these people actually did have the gift of tongues. But they were using it improperly. So it must be used for proper purpose. Otherwise, it's not a spirit-led kind of use of the spiritual gifts. Does that make sense? All right. So there's the two principles. Application question. How are you using your gift or gifts for the spiritual well-being of the church? Can I just give you a little assignment this week just to think about that? Next week we're going to consider the folly in thinking that only some gifts are necessary and the folly, folly of thinking that all should have the same gift. You know, maybe you're thinking right now, you know, I don't have the gift that I want. Or I envy someone else because of the gift that they have. And that's not the point. The point is, is that God is the one who appointed the gift that you have. And so is God right or is God wrong in choosing which gift to give you? And so the question is not, why did God give me this gift or why he didn't he give me that other gift? The question is, how am I using my gift for the common good of the local church? One of the reasons that we meet as an assembly is to use our spiritual gifts for the spiritual benefit of others. So how can you use your spiritual gift for the spiritual well-being of others? I mean, what, can, what, what kind of things can you do that would be maximally edifying to this local church? And this ought to be going through your mind before and during the time in which you meet together. What can I do today to help edify the body of Jesus Christ? Let me just finish up with a concluding statement and then I'll get to your question here. Today, we're laying the groundwork for our study next week. The church at Corinth was selfishly and proudly exalting themselves over others because they had certain spiritual gifts that others did not. And next week, we'll see that each part is valuable. Each of you, no matter which gift you have, is valuable to this church and that the diversity of gifts is actually necessary. It would not be good if everyone had the same gift and therefore... We should love the diversity of the spiritual gifts that God has appointed to each of us. Dina. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> it sounded like that wasn't the first time you said that then. <laughs> uh, yeah, I would say definitely. You know, in discovering your spiritual gift, again, I, I'm not into these big questionnaires and that, that, those type of things, but yes, ask God. If any of you lack wisdom, ask God. What is my spiritual gift? I don't know. Secondly, definitely ask others. You know, I think we'll touch on this next week as well, but um, what do others see as your gift because if someone says I, I got the gift of teaching and, and other people are like man I can't get anything out of what you're saying I don't even understand what you're talking about well then um, it seems to me that either your gift is not fully developed or um, or you just may not have the gift so I, I think we ought to be willing to consider the counsel of others and I think thirdly we should ask ourselves 
right? What is it that I take the most joy in doing when it comes to serving the church? Like, what, what things do I just absolutely feel the most joy about serving God when I'm doing this certain thing? Maybe that's a, a pointer to what your spiritual gift is. You know, some of you are great at hospitality or, or giving or serving or administering. You know, there's all sorts of spiritual gifts that, that are needed in this church and, and must be used. Or what are the things that you just love doing uh, when it comes to serving Christ? And that, that's a good pointer. So I would say those three things, God, others, and yourself. Um, and we'll talk more about that next week. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, because if it's all about you, your individual individual little worship so, uh, silo, then you, you've missed it. You missed the point. You missed the boat. Um, it's not what church is about. It's not what Christianity is about, frankly. Um, yes, we get saved individually, um, but but we we are consecrated as a group. Consecration, sanctification, um, our pursuit of godliness is a community project, and and we need each other. We we have to be team players. Good point. All right. Any other thoughts, Sandra?